slightly different episode of our podcast this week for obvious reasons. Ed isn't here due to the period of national mourning. And what you're about to hear is a conversation that was recorded before the sad news of last week. And it's on the subject of the commons, the concept of shared resources that has its origins in Roman law. And perhaps most interestingly, the commons are an alternative model to state or private ownership. And we're going to explore how the idea has been eroded in our country over time and the role it could play in solving some of our most pressing problems. In just a moment, we'll hear from Professor Guy Standing from SOAS, who will lay out some of the history and principles of the commons and give us his vision of how that could apply to our oceans. And then we'll have a couple of great examples of the idea in action. Firstly, Jenny Barlow from Taras Valley Nature Reserve in Scotland, which is a great story of a community coming together to buy land from private ownership and what that's going to mean for future generations. And then we'll talk to Abby Woodman, who's part of the East London Waterworks Park project, and hear about their ambitions and how to get communities to buy into this idea. Well, to begin the conversation and to familiarise ourselves with the idea of the commons, we are joined by Professorial Research Associate at SOAS and author of the Blue Commons, Guy Standing. Hello. Good morning. I wondered if we could start by just explaining what we mean by commons. It's something that crops up in anything from Magna Carta to Wikipedia. So how do we define it and the principle behind it? No, the commons are a very important part of our history and a very important part of progressive politics. If you look back through all the great rebellions and social struggles, right the way back to the 13th century, They've essentially been about working class struggles to recover the commons and revive the commons and strengthen the commons. And it goes all the way back to the ancient Roman emperor, Justinian, who established four types of property, private property, state property, nobody's property and common property. And what that meant was that it established that there are certain forms of property that belong to all of us and all of us equally as commons. And that included the land, the sea, the air, the minerals and resources that we inherit as society. And that essence went forward into enshrining not only that nature was part of our commons, but there was also social commons, civil commons, cultural commons, and what I've called knowledge commons that are established as belonging to all of us. And what we've seen throughout history is a systematic denial of our commons and a denial of our commons through various mechanisms, encroachment, neglect by the state, enclosure, commodification, privatization. And the essence of the book, The Blue Commons, is that one should see the sea and all that's under it and all that's in it as part of our commons. 
Let me ask you about your own personal interest in this. Um, about 20 years ago, you wrote a, a very well-regarded book about the so-called precariat and another about the basic income. What got you into this subject? Well, two reasons. One, I've been fascinated by the sea all my life. Second, I, I think that the commons is a very appropriate way of addressing the precariat. The precariat for listeners who are unfamiliar is essentially the emerging mass class of people living insecure lives and not having any security. And one of the reasons the precariat has lost any semblance of security is they've lost the commons. They've lost access to the commons. The precariat needs a, an enriching, sustaining commons. Throughout history, they've needed access to informal social protection, the means of subsistence, the right to work in the commons. But the loss of the commons in modern times, including the loss of public spaces, the loss of access to beautiful parks through privatization, the loss of our commons as a national health service because it's been privatized by stealth. The precariat is the class that loses most in every respect when the commons is chipped away. And they want a commons. I find that the talking about needing the commons, when I'm talking to an audience who are predominantly in the precariat, they get it straight away. They get it and they come up with examples and they talk about new forms of sharing and participation. And there are beautiful examples in the sea as well. And they relate to the fact that through privatization of the commons, the blue commons, the blue sea, the precariat in and around the seashores of the world have been growing enormously. When we think of a way, a, a tangible way in which you might be able to give an example of commons that have been eroded over the years, what, what, what's, what springs to mind? Well, for example, if you go back to the Middle Ages, 50% or more of all the land in Britain, in England, belonged to the commons. In, that, in other words, it was regarded as being a part of all of our ownership. It was then subject to a series of enclosure movements. All school children learn about the enclosures of the Tudor ages and the Victorian ages, whereby elites were given land. And the result is today only about 5% of all land in Britain is part of a commons. And the new book is about the economy of the sea and how the ocean has been, as you put it, plundered. Tell us what you mean about this, how it happened, and why it's something we should be concerned about. Yes, for, for hundreds and hundreds of years, it was just taken for granted that the sea and the seabed and, and the oceans were all part of our commons. That's not meaning open access. It was actually accepted so that it belonged to everybody equally. The big event came after the Second World War, when in 1945, the Truman Proclamation, as it's called, unilaterally annexed 200 nautical miles from the uh, United States coasts and declared that it was part of the US territory. This ushered in a long-term movement 
such that by 1982, with the passage of what's called UNCLOS, the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea, we had the biggest enclosure in the history of humanity. Essentially, all countries were enabled to have ownership of 200 nautical miles from their coast. This was converting a commons into state property, which is a step towards privatization, because first the governments have to own, and then they can privatize. And essentially what the privatization has been doing is creating private property rights in the sea, to the minerals, to the fish, to the seabed, to the the sea surface, and so on. The creation of an enclosure, easily the biggest in history, has allowed governments then to develop things like fish quota systems, like Britain has today. A fish quota system is where you transfer a right to fish to a tiny minority of corporate giants. So today, five families predominantly own the quota to our fish around the British shores. And they all happen to be in the Sunday Times rich list. Now, this is what happens when you allow a government to convert what was a commons into private property. We're going to be hearing later in this episode about a couple of local examples of communities buying from landowners. How do you think we'll get to a situation where land can be returned to the commons? Some of the examples that you might be giving that I give in the book are examples of how local communities, through a participatory process, through deliberative democracy and so on, have been enabled to become better stewards. But we also need better gatekeepers. The commons includes our air, includes our sea, includes our water. And if you present it that way, you can then think about common property rights. We all have a common property right in the things I'm talking about. And that opens up a vista of saying a progressive politics must be a revival of the commons and a restoration of justice through recovering the commons. There's a lot more that could be done by national politicians as well as international bureaucracies. But it goes all the way down to local communities being enabled to recover control of the commons. Guy, we have a hypothetical utopia on the podcast called the Jeffocracy. And having had this conversation, I would like the principle of the commons to underpin our future society. If we appointed you as some kind of SAR to to make sure that happens, what is the first thing you would do on day one as our advisor to make sure the principle of the commons is very present? I would draw up a progressive charter of the commons. I proposed a 44-article charter at the end of my book, The Plunder of the Commons. I think you could get very strong cross-class popular support. I think once you've got a commons charter, then you would set up a commission to make sure that all policies are consistent with moving in the direction of realizing the commons. We should establish commons capital funds. 
funds that get levies from people who are benefiting from taking the commons and build the funds up and from the funds paying out common dividends. And of course, common dividends are saying, look, we all deserve a return on the accumulated public commonwealth and it should be paid equally as a right. It's a common property right. Now, one of the policies that I've proposed for many years is a basic income. I think it would help legitimize saying everybody should receive a return on our accumulated common wealth and be compensated for the loss that has been taken place. It's a question of practical politicians who've got to find the language and vocabulary and the institutions that can help legitimize this progressive agenda. We will never have a total utopia, but the question is moving away from the direction we've been going in, which is dis- terrible, to a totally different direction of reviving the commons and using the commons as a mechanism of redistribution in terms of common justice, freedom and basic security. This is what the commons is all about. Guy Standing, the book is The Blue Commons. People can read much more about your ideas and analysis in there. Thank you so much for taking time to talk to us. It's been a pleasure. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. To show what this principle of the commons can look like in action, we have a great example from Jenny Barlow, who is a state manager at Terrace Valley Nature Reserve. Hello, Jenny. Morning. I've been looking at pictures of the nature reserve on your website and it just looks gorgeous. It's quite something, isn't it? Really is. I have to say, I'm very lucky to do the job that I do. Yeah, I mean, that that's where you get to go to work every day. It is, that's the office. So, um, yeah, I, I can't really complain, can I? It's quite something. Um, so it's, what this is, it's like a, an incredibly inspiring story about a community buyout. Uh, but I thought we could start with the land itself. So can you tell us about Langham Moor and, and where it is and what it's like and what the history of the place is? Yeah, so um, Langham Langham is in Dumfries and Galloway, so we're just over the Scottish border, about 30 minutes from Carlisle. 20 minute drive from Gretna Green, I worked out. Yes, yeah. Nice place for a honeymoon, maybe. Yeah. (laughs) Langham is a town of about 2,300 people, um, and the land that surrounds the town is very dramatic, beautiful landscape, and the Langham Moor and Terrace Valley sort of wraps around the town, so it's a really stunning river valley. And what is even more special about it, I think, and the reason probably why this community buyout journey happened is Langham's sort of cultural connections with that land. And I think it goes back to the the topic of today about commons. For the last 250 years, Langham has done something annually called the Common Riding, which 
is where the community have historically marked the boundaries of the common land. And that was to ensure that the community still had rights to go and cut peat and use the resources of that land without being impeded with access. So that is still goes on today and it's a massive festival where thousands of people come to town and the boundaries are marked on horseback. So it's really quite something. So if that idea of common land is, is historically so important, how did it end up being in private hands then? I think there's a long sort of disputed land rights here, but basically the land's been um, owned by Buckley Estates for quite a long time now, hundreds of years. And then the reason why the boundaries are marked was so that the community could still access it and, t- and, and use the land. Buckley Estates uh, put the land up for sale in 2019 um, and it was quite a shock announcement. People locally weren't expecting that to happen. It had never been sold before. It had one landowner for hundreds of years and there was a sort of a feeling in the community here that we can't just let this go by. We cannot let this opportunity go by that this land could get passed on to who knows who. We might not have a decision over what happens to it. Access connection with the land might be affected. And there was a huge opportunity for sort of community regeneration through land ownership. So was there one person? Was there somebody who saw it go up for sale and said, Everybody, here's an idea. Well, there was. We have a community-run paper here, and they did like a special edition when this came out because it was just such a shock that it was going up for sale, and no one knew who was going to buy it, what was going to happen to it. We're a community development trust in Langham. We've been running for 25 years. It's a community-run board, and lots of people in the local community came together, and we're like, "What can we actually do to?" Could we actually buy this? Is there an opportunity to do this? And what was the sum of money? 25,000 acres went up for sale. The land that we were interested in was 10,500 acres and that had gone up for £6.8 million. So for a small community, a community development trust, at that point, that seemed like, is this an impossible dream? The Langham Initiative decided because of this sort of upswelling of community support and this idea that we could potentially buy it, the Langham Initiative took forward a massive community engagement exercise to just sort of determine whether there was community support for it. You'll never get to the point where everybody agrees, but there was a really strong support for a community buyout. So then that started the whole journey, basically. Once we'd done all that, a fundraising campaign started. Initially, we started with a crowdfunder and I thought that we'll just give this a go and see what happens. And in six months, I think it was like a sort of spark of hope, really, in the middle of COVID when everybody was, it was a very dark time. It was just a catalyst and it like this little spark just sort of ignited. And in six months, thousands of people got behind us with the crowdfunder. We had private donors, grant funds from the Scottish government, and we raised £3.8 million in six months. Wow. (laughs) I still, when I say it, I'm like, did that really happen? (laughs) So we bought the first tranche of land, 5,200 acres, came into community ownership last year. And we agreed with Buckley Estates, who've been really supportive of what we're trying to do. The second half, the Upper Terrace Valley, 5,300 would be held off the open market to allow us to raise the final 2.2 million. So we have literally, as of the 31st of July, just raised the final sum. So in total, we've raised six million pounds to bring in the final bit of the Terrace Valley. So now we have a community-owned nature reserve, which is... uh, 10,500 acres of land, which is... Unbelievable. It's fantastic. Yeah, it's been 
been a whirlwind. It's been a whirlwind. And do you know what? I think the most amazing thing about it is just the fact that this has been so people-led and the fact that anybody has been able to, if they wanted to help, have helped us get it over the line. And we've had thousands of thousands of public donations. I think it's a really exciting new chapter for this land and, and we can show the power of what communities can do and what we can do for sort of large-scale nature recovery, climate action, but also providing opportunities for people through nature restorations. So the, the community have put in money and they've put in time mm-hmm. raising money. Yep. Now, now that the land belongs to the people, what do they have to put in? So the big thing that underpins everything, besides all the sort of big plans for nature restoration and climate action, it has to be economically sustainable in the long term. We started off with some really clear sort of objectives of what we were going to work to do. So large scale nature restoration, restoration of peatlands and forests for climate action, community regeneration and sustainability. And, you know, the community own this land in perpetuity. So we're at the start of a very long journey. The big exercise for us over the next sort of six months is to pull together a sort of collaborative, democratic kind of action plan or management plan to set out our collective priorities. The big thing of why we did this was that local people had a voice. They can shape the future of what happens. I think it's going to be a very evolving journey as we go. And we definitely haven't got all the answers, but I think we're just really keen to be transparent, just keeping people involved, being really collaborative. And I think that if we go with that, we'll do something really special, really really good. And you talk about those high level goals of sustainability and community regeneration. If I'm someone living in Langholme and you're explaining the benefits to me, mm-hmm. what it'll look like for me over the next year or five years or 10 years, like how do you explain that to me? I suppose people have such different interests. They have some people are really interested in the sort of nature based side of things and how we're going to restore the land. But I think the big thing, one of the sort of key drivers behind this as well is that Langham suffered historically Langham was a really famous textile town so it was a booming sort of mill town the main employer here was the woolen and textile mills there was huge job losses as they closed so there's been sort of an economic downturn here which has affected people quite badly 1200 job losses what we're starting to try and look at is is you know increased tourism, jobs, indirect things, so how we can employ local contractors, suppliers, consultants, but also sort of adventure tourism, ecotourism. The big thing is just more opportunities for people, but sort of try and broaden the types of opportunities, the economic opportunities that are available for people. We do loads in the schools, getting people out, getting the kids out on the reserve and actually them feeling that sense of ownership over the land and then seeing the opportunities that come from that land when they leave school. I think what's really exciting is it's a blank slate that we can shape now. So it's an idea that that will have repercussions beyond even our lifetimes in, into future generations in Langham. Yeah, it, it's a forever project. I think the big thing is that it's for future generations. This goes across a lot of land ownership generally. There's a lot of power and wealth that come with those assets and a lot of opportunities. And actually now that is sitting in community hands. So that all the money and the wealth and the opportunities that might come from that land, it just provides different opportunities for people now that that land is owned by the community. So it's a very exciting new chapter and we're it's very hopeful. I think at the moment we need we need a bit of hope, don't we? We do. And this is kind of a big question. It's bordering on philosophical, I think. But we'll hear people talk about a loss of community cohesion. Mm. And there's something in this project 
that not only something that has brought together people in Langholm, but just the idea of it mm. is inspiring people, perhaps with no connection to the place. What do you think that that says? Does it give us a glimpse of what a, a different way of thinking about communities and society could look like? I think it definitely does. I think sometimes when you're hearing the news and when you're hearing that negative stuff all the time and you never hear any positive stories, I think you can almost just become really apathetic and just think, oh, what is the point? I literally, like, I just can't face hearing it. But actually, when you hear something, you think, actually, that that seemed really impossible at the beginning. Six million pounds, and that's been done in two years. And look at, you know, what could be achieved when we all come together. And I think, actually, if you've got a tangible way of making something really inspiring happen and you can help to make that happen, I think that's what catalyzed it. That is a good sign for how we could change society. So I think it is just a, a, a very small example of how things could be very different if we just sort of actually have a little bit of hope. I think that's what I sort of always take from it. Um, and I think when people feel inspired and positive and that you can actually change things, I think that that little spark, and I think you sometimes you only need a little spark and it can ignite something amazing. It's a brilliant story and it just sounds gorgeous. I hope I get to visit one day. Oh, I'd love to host you. <laughs> yeah, we'd love to come. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk to us, Jenny. Oh, it's been great. Thank you. And to round off the conversation, we're going to hear about an exciting idea from Abby Woodman, who is chair of East London Waterworks Park. Hello, Abby. Hello, Jeff. Thank you for having me. Well, thanks for coming on. This project isn't too far from where I'm sitting at the moment, so I'm quite excited about this. Tell us about the idea. Tell us about the East London Waterworks Park, who you are and what it is that you're aiming to do. So we are a volunteer-run charity. We are a group of people from Hackney and Waltham Forest, and we've come together to reimagine a new future for a big piece of concrete that's right in the middle of the Lee Valley Marshes. It was once common land, so um, the idea is to bring it back into community ownership to allow local people to decide what happens on the site. We got together in 2019 and started talking about the idea and what we are looking at doing is uncovering the filter beds. It was once a water treatments work. So we want to uncover part of the filter beds, create ponds for wild swimming. So there'll be naturally clean ponds using rainwater that will be cleaned by reeds and aquatic plants. We want to create some really beautiful community spaces, a make and repair space, a place for arts and sciences to collaborate, a space for us to generate our own electricity and give sustainable living a go. And what's really important to us is that access to the space, to the swimming, to the community spaces is free because we think that's a really fundamental part of community ownership and inclusivity, really. It sounds wonderful. You mentioned that it was Commons originally. What exactly is the the history because the delineation between state-owned and and commons can be a bit confusing sometimes. Yes. So um, historically, it was Lammas land, it was common land, it was where people could turn their uh, animals out for grazing during certain parts of the year. It was then, I don't know if it was enclosed or it was bought, but those common rights were commuted and it was turned into a waterworks in the 19th century to respond to the cholera epidemics in London. So it was providing clean drinking water to the people of East London, but it was done via a private company. That obviously then went into public ownership when the water companies were nationalised. 
It then went back into private ownership when those water companies were privatised and it was owned by Thames Water for many years where they were still operating it as a waterworks. And then in the 1960s, they moved that up the river a little bit where the water was a bit cleaner and they concreted it over and used it as a depot since then. Then they decided it was surplus to requirements and they sold it and the central government bought it as part of their free schools programme. And I think a really important thing to mention at this point is it's metropolitan open land. So um, although it's gone through all this kind of backwards and forwards between um, private ownership and public ownership, um, it is protected like Greenbelt is protected from development um, as metropolitan open land. Is there an an amount of money on the totaliser that you have to have to raise? Yes. So we do have to buy the site and that is our first big hurdle. So we've started off by imagining the project into existence in the hope that that will inspire people to help us raise the money. So we're currently crowdfunding to raise £500,000 on Crowdfunder. So if you Google that, if you're interested in helping, that would be amazing if you could donate. And we are raising that amount of money to demonstrate to the landowner, which is central government, that we are serious that we can raise money, that the community is behind this idea. And then we want to raise the rest of the money to buy the site from corporate donations, trusts and foundations, that sort of thing. We're being a bit bold about how much we're offering to buy the site for. We've got market value of 20 million minus social value of 17 million, which gives us a number of 3 million, which is a big number. So when the state is thinking about selling land like that, it would have to think about social value in the way that a private owner wouldn't. Is that right? We hope it does. So it's owned by central government and it's being managed by an arm's length property management company owned by the Department for Education. The very key thing is to convince the government that this project really does support international, national, regional and local policies in terms of sustainability, community cohesion, all sorts of different things. So this is why we think that it's a really good news story for the government taking this piece of land that they bought to build free schools They can't build free schools. What are they going to do with it? Why not give it to the community to create something really groundbreaking in terms of responding to the climate crisis and bringing the community together? Why is it important that it's the community that's behind this and it's collectively owned by the community rather than, say, lobbying the the local authority to, to buy it and transform it? Well, I think there's two parts to that. One, I don't think the the local authority has the capacity to take on a project like this. It's got a lot of other things on its plate. Also, I think community ownership of green spaces and blue spaces particularly is critical in determining how those spaces are run. So if you look at a lot of uh, council-owned parks... They are being fenced off for large parts of the summer for festivals. The councils are seeing them as a money-making opportunity. And what we really want to demonstrate is that we can put nature first. We can manage these spaces for the environment. We can make positive steps towards tackling climate change and biodiversity loss. And that is an affordable thing to do. And I think the only way for us to demonstrate that is to do it ourselves. And what does your group look like in terms of who you are and how you're structured? So how is it set up in terms of your decision making and and how you pursue generating these resources? And if there are any conflicts of ideas, what's the structure? We like to think this is a bit of a blueprint for other community groups. So we are a charity. We're a legal organisation. We have trustees. Um, So we are a professional organisation. We can make this happen. But obviously that community engagement and involvement is really important. So underlying that we have a secondary structure. 
we use a sociocratic method of making decisions, which means decisions are made by consent, not consensus. So someone puts forward a proposal, that proposal is then discussed and it goes forward unless people have objections. If they have objections, the proposal is reworked until those objections disappear. So it allows us to reach a collective decision, but to do it relatively speedily. And we have um, encountered a number of situations where there have been a difference of opinion. It can be very difficult to make decisions. So we've made how to make decisions a really central part of this. In terms of how people can get involved, absolutely anyone can come along to our meetings and they're a guest. Then they pitch in and they do some stuff and they become a friend. And if they kind of stick around and we really get to know them and they're super involved, then they become a member and they kind of have legal responsibility for the charity. That's so interesting. I think consent versus consensus could be an episode in its own right, actually. Just to ask a slightly uncomfortable question, and I think it is about what this project looks like finally and who uses it. So it's 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 a very mixed area of London in terms of its demographics across the board. And something that I notice is that if there, there are some great wild swimming ponds near me, but it tends to be affluent people, gentrifiers who are using those. How How do you make sure that that doesn't happen? So we don't want that to happen. We want it to be truly representative of the whole community. And environmental projects are historically white middle class people. And as you say, this is a hugely diverse area. We've set out right at the beginning to make a real commitment to inclusivity and diversity. So we, one of the things we raised money for in our very first crowdfunder last year was a listening project. We did a lot of research into how different groups of people engage with open spaces. Then we moved on to phase two, which was talking to 12 community groups that represent different aspects of the community that are historically underrepresented. So we had a fantastic conversation with the Orthodox Jewish community, had a conversation with the Muslim community, great conversations with young black people, people with mental health difficulties, 12 12 different groups. And we kind of built up 12 inclusivity principles from that and they underpin all our works. And then what we're now doing, we're now entering phase three of that research, which is going out to talk to individuals in the community. So one of the things I found really interesting was that some of the older African-Caribbean people from Hackney are very put off by an appearance of gentrification. And so it's very important to make sure that the way we choose to retrofit the buildings, the way we choose to set up that entrance to the park is not off-putting right from the outset. It's also about perhaps getting transport together to help people travel to the site. There's so many different ways of doing things, but we're trying to work through them step by step. With the crowdfunding... Obviously, it's people have got a tough time of it at the moment with the cost of living crisis. Is is that making things tougher for you? That's a really interesting question. I don't underestimate the impact that is going to have on people. We raised two hundred and fifty thousand in two months, though. And one of the things that I'm emphasising is it 
it's not so so much the amount of money that you're able to give it's that you're able to give something so we had somebody who gave one pound now that's brilliant that's a person that is supporting the project with what they can afford and I think that's that's really critical that said it is an all or nothing crowdfunder so if we don't reach that number by the end of October we don't get anything so we're nervous but hopeful. Abby can I just ask you more generally if someone's listening to this and they're intrigued by this idea of community ownership what have you learned in the inception and early days of this project about what it can do for communities and what what type of will there is out there to join in with this kind of thing so i think i've learned that anything is possible that you need to have an idea and then you need to find two or three other people who think your idea is good and then you take the next step and then you take the next step And then you take the next step and it's surprising where you can get to. I mean, I'm just blown away by what we've achieved in the last couple of years. Sometimes it can feel so overwhelming, everything that's happening. Like you say, the cost of living crisis, the climate crisis and just taking action rooted in your local community can make you feel more connected, more hopeful. So I know that Ed will be very keen to go outdoor swimming there. (laughs) Um, Do you you have a date in mind? (laughs) Well, if he gets involved with the volunteering, he can swim for the first time from 2027, we hope. And then we, and we think it'll be open to the public from 2029. That's our plan anyway. OK, I'll, tr- I'll try and nudge him towards 2027. Abby, thank you so much for taking time to talk to us. Thank you for having me. And that was our podcast for this week. Thank you to all our guests, Guy Standing, Jenny Barlow and Abby Woodman. Emma Corsham is our audio producer. Our content producer is Rachel Barber. Thank you to you for listening. As ever, we'd love to hear from you. Share your thoughts and ideas with us at cheerfulpodcast.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.